Hello, this is the European History Podcast. My name is Daniel. If you're enjoying the series, you can like us on Facebook at the European History Podcast. And if you ever have any questions about any particular thing that I talk about, or if you wish to give me a correction, which I'm sure there'll be plenty of those, you can always email me, please, at the European History Podcast at gmail.com. In the last few episodes, we talked about the beginning of uh, humanity, the beginning of early human cultures. We talked about several huge revolutions and the discovery of fire and the development of farming and the first cities. And in the very previous episode, we discussed all of the other great ancient civilizations before and besides European cultures. So today we officially begin the European story, the Western civilization story, with the rise of Greek civilization. So around 3000 BCE, people settled in the Aegean Sea, which is around Greece and Asia Minor, and they developed a culture and practices and values that would be borrowed and preserved by the Romans, and they will go on to influence European and Western history in ways that surpass or equal any other contribution or influences of any other culture. And so we say here at the beginning, or I say here at the beginning, that Greek influence cannot be overestimated for European history and Western civilization. It's not just the oldest European civilized culture, but it also truly happens to have the most influence. And that's not, those two things don't always go together. What is oldest doesn't always necessarily carry the most influence on future events. But in this case, the oldest culture in Europe. Uh, the oldest civilization, at least in Europe, does enjoy huge influence on uh, the European story. So that's around 3000 BCE, and we start on the island of Crete, because that's where we see the earliest civilization, not on the mainland of Greece. And we call this culture in Crete, on the island of Crete, the Minoan culture. And we name this after the legendary king Minos, who ruled uh, these peoples, and uh, he was a great warrior, and he asked the god Poseidon for a, a white bull to show his favor, and, and Poseidon agreed, and he, Poseidon had hoped that King Minos was going to then do the right thing, quote-unquote, and sacrifice the white bull to give it back to Poseidon. But King Minos doesn't. He keeps the white bull to himself in a safe place and just sacrifices a substitute, you know, less impressive bull. But if you want more about that story, you can find a look that up around on YouTube or online. But so we start with these peoples, the Minoans. And their culture, their history is divided into three periods, the early, middle, and late. And that is based on the archaeological evidence that has gone through the... Uh, sedimentary levels that have been excavated there. So we have the early, middle, and late periods. The Minoan culture gets to brag of large palaces in the middle and late periods when they are the most prosperous. And these palaces are huge. They have uh, basements, uh, they have bathrooms, they have rudimentary plumbing and piped water. In their dining halls and rooms, they have great murals. 
But one thing they don't have, which is very odd, are no defensive structures. They don't really are not defensively planned to be able to protect themselves. And there have been a couple of theories that have been proposed to kind of explain why this might be. First, uh, the religious beliefs, the evidence regarding the, the religious practices of the Minoans show that they're more matriarchal. There are more feminine influences to maybe suggesting, uh, even if today we would consider that maybe a sexist, uh, uh, gender-insensitive suggestion, but they're more pacific, more peace-loving uh, because they're more female-influenced. The other explanation, which is more kind of practical or pragmatic, is that, well, the Minoan culture is on the island of Crete, which is in the middle of the Aegean Sea, and so there wasn't much need for much defenses, uh, which that may have been true at the beginning during this Minoan culture, but what we're going to see is that the Minoan culture, the civilization, was invaded by mainland Greeks, as we're going to call the early Greeks, the Mycenaeans, and Minoan culture was taken over, despite being on the island of Crete. Other thing we know about the Minoans is that they left a few tablets uh, behind that have three different types of writing on them, one which was a form of hieroglyphic style and another one uh, known as Line B because we've not completely translated it, but it's an early, it looks like an early form of Greek uh, and the translations available uh, from the line so that is a type of monarchy and they had a, a strong monarch you know, directing affairs and a bureaucracy to back the king up in organizing and directing the civic affairs of their culture. So as I said, eventually the Minoans were invaded. Mainland, uh, mainland Greece uh, took over the island, and we call these people the Mycenaeans. In the 2000s BCE, we call this the early Helladic period, and this is the period when the Greek mainland was settled by people. They, they used metal. We know they had houses. We know they traded with the Aegean Islands, but they were not, they were not specifically Greek people. Okay, So the, the actual people that we're going to call uh, Greeks are going to invade later. So soon after the 2000, year 2000 BCE, archaeology shows that these settlements, the first settlements in the major places of mainland Greece, were taken over, most likely by the arrival of what I said there, the, the actual Greek people. After the, these Greek peoples take over, the mainland grows rich to, a, uh, to its peak around 1600 BCE. We call this, uh, because there is such dominance by the Mycenaean culture, we call this entire period the Mycenaean period. Things that we can discuss about their, their culture is that they also built great palaces. Uh, some, in some parts of them, they're four stories tall. They are a lot more practical, though. They're built in a much more defensive manner. They're built up on the top of a hill so that they geographically dominate the countryside. Uh, of course, because we can predict what's going to, what supports the construction of a great palace. You need control of a lot of resources. You need control of a lot of agricultural territory, uh, feeding a large population of human laborers uh, and human warriors. 
we see their culture is not pacific at all or peace-loving necessarily like the Minoans. They are a warrior culture, and this is shown in their art and their, their weaponry that's been left behind and later found by archaeology. They had burial practices that involved large stone chambers uh, made from stones that weighed over a hundred tons. So imagine what has to be involved in carving out, uh, carving correctly, and then transporting and constructing with stones that weigh a hundred tons. The fact that we see this archaeological material, and I say this to my students, when we have these physical objects, uh, thanks to archaeology, historians and uh, anthropologists are able to definitively know certain things about these peoples, at minimum. We have found these huge stones that have been constructed in certain ways, and therefore we know that someone must have had the political uh, financial power to order that these things be constructed. We know that there must have been someone in charge who could uh, command and afford and feed the labor of many people. The wealth of these Mycenaean cultures and kings likely came from raiding, piracy, and, yes, trade, of course. Mycenaean culture reached such power that they expanded their wealth, they expanded their trade operations and relationships, and they are even mentioned by the Hittites in Asia Minor, and they're also recorded by the Egyptians in the Nile Delta, and uh, they're, called, they're basically referred to by the Egyptians as marauders, uh, pirates. Uh, they probably did also sack Troy around the year 1250 BCE, which is the basis of the epic Greek story, uh, oral story, oral traditional story of Homer uh, in the Iliad and the Odyssey. By the year 1200 BCE, Mycenaean culture was inevitably destroyed, and it collapsed, perhaps due to a massive volcanic explosion that was known at around that time period that uh, may have polluted the sky and caused tsunamis to destroy the coastal trading ports and cities. After uh, the, the initial decline, there are a lot of indications that there were invasions from northern Dorian Greeks who spoke a, a different dialect of Greek, but in any case, whatever the purpose and over whatever period of time, Mycenaean culture collapsed, came to an end by around 1100 BCE. And we see the Greek Middle Ages uh, go on after this period until about 750 BCE. And this is not what I'm talking about. This is not what we're going to talk about later in terms of the European Middle Ages in general. This is like the ancient uh, Middle Age period, specifically for Greece. And it's not a happy Middle Age. It's a, it's the Dark Ages for the Greeks here. The the power and government structure, the the economic foundations have been uh, dismantled or torn apart. And so we see this as a Dark Age. Uh, the literacy rates fall. The existence of writing uh, disappears. We do not have writing uh, tablets from this period. And so what we see here is the wealth and the organization of the Mycenaean cultures destroyed. It reduces agricultural production, and that forces the depopulation of cities and migration. You can't live in a city if there is no 
uh, stable agricultural labor force moving food into the city so that you and other city dwellers can engage in other economic activities. There is no food. Uh, that reminds me, just as an aside, a famous quotation by uh, presidential candidate Richard Nixon, who once said uh, that if you were to destroy the cities but leave the farms, uh, the cities would rise up again within a matter of years. But if you destroy the farms, Nixon said, then grass will grow in every city in America. And that was true back in the 1960s and 70s, and it was true back here uh, in this period with the ancient Greeks. Everything starts with having an agricultural food surplus. So, once that's taken away, we see the collapse of the civilization. This made the Aegean Sea uh, a Greek world because people were forced to leave the mainland looking for other opportunities. But the trading culture with the great Mediterranean civilizations was not ever like it was before. As I said, writing disappeared, as well as literacy rates. And much of this time period is unknown to us because we simply don't have, the rec don't have written records. So, that takes us to talking about these, this period, the Dark Ages. Uh, we talk about the age of Homer uh, as our best resource for understanding the culture, at least, understanding the social values and the oral stories or legends, even if they're not historically accurate. Uh, accurate. Uh, this is the information we have. We call it the Age of Homer. So, we have to keep in mind, of course, that these epics, these stories from Homer, we don't necessarily know who Homer actually was, and these epic poems were not written down until for centuries after they first uh, emerged. They were oral traditions. It would be something that people memorized and handed down. And therefore, if you've ever, if you've ever played the game of telephone, you know the story it, it can change. The story can be influenced by later decades, later generations as time goes by. But no writing, no literacy. This is the information we have. We do know that during the Dark Ages, the Greeks, they did have kings in the different uh, uh, cultural areas, but they were not as powerful and absolute as before. Probably because the kings were not as, uh, the cultures were not as strong. Uh, the culture is not as strong, the economy is not as strong. It's hard to be a king who has that kind of government political strength. And so the cultures are much more vulnerable, the kings are much more vulnerable. And as a result, the kings in this Dark Age period, the Greek Middle Ages, they had to cooperate with the nobles. The noblemen could speak in councils, uh, and they could give their ideas, ideas freely. They would openly oppose uh, things that the kings wanted. And if a lot of nobles did not want or agree with a policy or decision of the king, uh, the king could still most likely force what he wanted, but he, it would be a great risk for him to do that. Yeah, it would be uh, a liability. It would be dangerous for him to do that. So the noblemen could speak in the councils and common people, the farmers, the laborers, they could attend the councils and assemblies and they could express their views, you know, not necessarily individually speak, but they could express collectively by, you know, booing or cheering, etc. And this may seem common, we take this for granted today, but this reality of nobles voting and giving their agreement to decisions and attendance from common people, uh, common workers in the, in the halls of government power, that sets these Greek cultures apart from earlier 
the, the earlier Mycenaean period, and it sets them apart from the contemporary government systems, their neighbors in Persia and Egypt. This is the beginning of a limited government. This is the beginning of constitutional government. So that we are going to see being a strong influence on world history, strong influence on European history that no other culture is going to match. So that's how it started. Uh, why, did we ha- why did we let other people participate? Why did we let nobles have more say? Uh, because there was economic, uh, economic vulnerability. There was less central figure dominated uh, economy, less strong man dictator style kings. So early Greek society and during the Greek Middle Ages, society is divided up. If we want to move, in, move on now to talk about the kind of just social traits of the Greeks, the Greeks are divided between, first and foremost, they're divided between the nobility and everyone else. Uh, the everyone else is divided uh, between thetes, which were basic, basically maybe small landowners, um, people who had land that was tied to their family, uh, secondly, you had landless laborers, and thirdly, you had slaves. Now, if you had to pick one of those, you may say, well, uh, I would want to be a thief or else a landless laborer, not a slave. But that's not necessarily the case. The most vulnerable members of Greek society here are really the landless free laborers because there is no social welfare system and the, the household, the wealthy households are not interested in taking care of landless laborers. If you were a slave, you were at least a recognized member of a stable economical, uh, ec- economic household. And so you, you had security of that kind. You didn't have freedom, but you have security. And, and in the case of a landless laborer, ha- how free are you if you don't have food security? Not very. And so uh, most historians are agreeing that the landless laborers actually had the worst uh, position here. So let's talk about social values. Uh, what were the, you know, the character traits that were most valued by the Greeks? Uh, they, they valued first and foremost courage. Uh, they valued physical prowess, physical skill, uh, honor, courage, being better than everyone else, protecting your family, your friends, and your property, building up the family's reputation. All of this built from the stories of Homer. These, the Iliad and the Odyssey, uh, the stories from Homer, the epic poems from Homer, they have influence over the Greek mindset and the Greek culture and the Greek uh, moral values more than anything else. And they were used and reused all over Greek society. They were used in school. That's how you're going to learn how to uh, speak Greek properly. They were used in government debate. They would be used in discussion between friends about different matters of the day to compare what people should do, what your neighbor should do. Uh, so these stories of Homer are basically the, the inspired text for the character values for the Greek people. And so those, those values that I mentioned are the, the dominant Greek values. This is what Greek people live for. It's what their, their ethical destiny is. So the role of women in Greek society, as we, I've discussed earlier before, and what we are going to see time and time again, uh, the role for women is uh, limited. 
uh, their role is seen as to bear and raise children. Uh, they preside over the household. Uh, they govern the servants. They direct servant activities. They are the caretakers of family property. Uh, their values is highly valued for the beauty of Greek women, uh, constancy, skill at weaving, and the the icon of Greek female virtue is in Penelope in the story of the uh, the story of the Odyssey. So that's the role of women. Uh, women in this period, unlike before. Uh, un- and unlike afterwards, in the Dark Ages or the Middle Ages of Greece, they, high-class women would be able to freely move about the community. They would engage in conversation. They would actually sit at banquet with their husbands uh, and discuss and give their opinion. And so you do have this kind of social uh, freedom that you may we are not going to see later on, actually, in Greek history. Next aspect of early Greek civilization and middle age Greek civilization is the rise of the polis. And I'm sure in schooling we all learn about the Greek polis and being the, the city-state. Uh, a city-state is basically uh, a city. Uh, all city-states are cities, uh, but they are independent. And so if you take, say, the city of Miami, and you said that the mayor of Miami was the supreme uh, government official for the people of Miami, and no one outside of the city area could tell them what to do. That gives you an idea about of what a city-state would be. Of course, Miami's not a city-state because the laws of Florida govern Miami, and the President of the United States and the Congress, the laws of the nation, also uh, rule over what goes on in Miami. So if you were to take a city and make it completely independent, make it completely sovereign, that gives you the idea of what a city-state is. And in Greece, we call this the polis. But that's not all. Uh, The polis is much deeper than that for the Greek people at this time. Uh, The people of Greece at this time look at the polis as the community of literal relatives and extended relatives. There's the idea that all the members, all the people of Athens, all the people of Sparta, all the people of Thebes, or uh, not Thebes, but uh, Corinth, uh, came from the a single ancestor. And so it's literally your your family, basically. And so there's this, this system of clans and tribal traditions within the city-state. And the scholars and philosophers of these Greek people, they viewed the polis as a natural part of the, a human being's existence. It was a part of human nature for a polis to come into existence. It was considered to be just right for a human being, to be a member, a responsible, accountable member of a polis. And the opposite of that, it was viewed that if you weren't a member of a polis, you were almost viewed as not fully human, not fully a member of the species. You would be viewed as either if you didn't need or did not want the assistance or contribution to your life from a community or from a polis, you were viewed as partly either, you must be either part beast or part God, but not human. And so to think about the polis as just a city-state, that has to go further. It is, it is deep in the social, cultural bone marrow of Greek people. 
So parts of the polis you have, geographically at least, now not just the deep cultural meaning, is you have the Acropolis, which is the high city, and you'd have the Agora down below, which would have the marketplace and the civic center. As an extension of the polis, after the polis develops, we see a change in how military strategy and military formation is utilized by a city-state. Of course, as city-states grow in population and expand, Greece has actually a very limited amount of agricultural land, a land that can produce food. It is 25%, I, I believe that's correct, 25% of the Greek mainland is good for farming. And so, as these city-states grow, they become quite competitive with each other as a matter of pride and a matter of necessity to control more territory. And so, this need to conquer more territory away from a neighboring polis leads, gives rise to coming up with superior ways of fighting. And the superior method of fighting goes from not just having a quote-unquote champion fighter or in a group of his best warriors going after a small other group from the other city-state, but it goes to what we call the hoplite phalanx. And that changed society, not just the military. Uh, the hoplite phalanx, a hoplite was a soldier who had a long spear and a very large shield. And a hoplite soldier was not really a soldier in, in that sense if, unless he was with a group of fellow men who were going to go with him and march and fight in reality in a very controlled way. They would be in a square uh, formation with uh, shields at the front line facing forward and the men just behind the front would have their shields o over the uh, front line men's heads. So it's uh, kind of like a turtle formation, uh, a shell to protect uh, the whole unit. And so they reduce casualties and ensure more likelihood of success when there's fights. This phalanx, now think about the phalanx not just in terms of military and fighting and warfare, but the nature of a phalanx meant that soldiers depended on cooperation and group action, not on individual powerful champions. And so that is a natural analogy that occurs there, a natural analogy between military formation and social government values, the system of government that a city-state should have, the system of rights and responsibilities that all members of the society should have. And here we're going to see this military development is going to lead to uh, social changes, government changes. But in its use as a military strategy, uh, the destruction of property during warring periods between two different uh, poleases declined. And members of the polis were farmers themselves. They were not wealthy people. They weren't knights and you know noble warriors. They were farmers, you know, on fighting during the non-harvest periods. So as the city-state starts to rely and have no choice but to rely on the defense of these farmer uh, soldiers in hoplite phalanx formations the desires and the priorities of 
these farmer soldiers can't be ignored. So the translation of the farmer into a soldier also grants that farmer future government power and civic rights. So that is the beginning of European history officially. That is the rise of Greek civilization. In our next episode, I'm going to talk about the expansion of Greek territory, expansion of Greek culture uh, across the Mediterranean region. We're going to talk about in detail the major city-states, Athens and Sparta, and how they were very, very different social and government systems, different social cultures. And we're going to talk about the Persian Wars. I hope you've enjoyed. Again, if you enjoy this, you can like us on Facebook at the European History Podcast. And if you have any questions, you can email me at the European History Podcast at gmail.com. Join us next time.